Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined this week by Steve Hayes, David French, and Declan Garvey, our staff reporter who runs the Morning Dispatch for those of you who subscribe to our morning newsletter. And if you don't, you should. All right, this podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And we'll hear a little later from our sponsors, ExpressVPN and the Bradley Foundation. So what's up today? Well, we've got to talk about the vice presidential pick, Senator Kamala Harris. Lots to dive into there. We'll do a little on the DNI report on foreign election meddling from China, Iran, and Russia, of course. The Belarusian election. And we'll end with a little college sports. Let's dive in. First topic, no surprise. Steve, lead us off. Yeah, so the big news is Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's running mate. Um, as we wrote in the morning dispatch on Wednesday morning, this was one time when the conventional wisdom was actually right. Talk to people in Washington, D.C., talk to Democratic insiders. They all thought that despite some early skirmishes between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, when she was a candidate for president, that she would likely emerge as his running mate, somebody who made too much sense given her experience as a, a prosecutor, uh, her experience in law enforcement in uh, California, her ability to be elected, the fact that she had been scrutinized at a national level, um, the fact that she uh, is black, the fact that she's a woman, which was one of the things that Biden said early. Uh, was going to define his pick, um, that Kamala Harris was really somebody who who uh, was kind of the obvious pick in retrospect, looking back. Um, I guess I, I would start the conversation by just pointing out some of the coverage. I think the coverage has been very, very interesting, uh, bordering on celebratory by most of the ostensibly mainstream reporters who are covering politics and covering the race. Um, there was a New York Times front page spread, three different stories, historic choice, felt um, very, very friendly uh, to Harris. And we, the contrast, which we also included in the morning dispatch this morning, was a very small bottom right corner article about Mike Pence when he was chosen as Donald Trump's running back, running mate back in 2016. Um, you know, I think that the Times and others have portrayed her as something of a pragmatic moderate, which I don't think quite captures where she comes from ideologically. I don't think she is the screaming Bernie Sanders style socialist that the Trump campaign and its supporters uh, have portrayed her to be either. Um, in some ways, I mean, her voting record is very liberal. But in some ways, she defy, defies those kind of easy ideological categories. But I do think from the perspective of a conservative, there are a lot of things to be worried about with, with this pick. Um, she has, just to pick a, a few off the bat, she has embraced the Green New Deal. She said if uh, Republicans won't work with Democrats, she said this when she was campaigning uh, for president, if Republicans won't work with Democrats, to pass the Green New Deal, that she would be open to throwing over the filibuster in order to do that. She said she was open to expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court. She signaled in her campaign that she was eager to sign executive orders on gun control and basically takes a, I think, a rather anti-constitutional approach to uh, many issues of, of governance and is someone who I think will end up likely being a, a, a pretty solid liberal warrior for a Joe Biden who is already running, I would say, as a fairly liberal by historical perspectives uh, candidate for the Democrats. Do you, uh, do you all think that I'm crazy about that or it, it, does that make some sense? Do you think she's going to be um, 
a liberal? Do you think she's a, a progressive in the sort of old school mode? Or is she the pragmatic moderate that the New York Times would have us believe? David? I, I think she tries to find where the Democratic Party is and tries to jump there with both feet. And I think that that was a big problem, actually, with her vice with her uh, presidential campaign is you could see her flailing early on because she was trying to figure out, is the party really with Medicare for all or is it not? I mean, if we right. look back at her presidential campaign, a lot of it was marked by this unbelievable uncertainty about her own health plan. Um, to, it got her really off to a, a, a wrong foot. So I think that the way I, the way I thought about this pick was mainstream Democrat picks mainstream Democrat, bottom line. And that she has not necessarily demonstrated that she's an ideological leader. Um, she's more of an ideological follower and she's going to go where the party goes. And, uh, that where that is, is uh, very much left on social issues. I mean, she rather uh, notoriously uh, said of a Catholic, uh, a Catholic judicial nominee that, you know, are you going to quit the Knights of Columbus if you're going to be uh, a c- confirmed to the to the bench? Uh, so th- there's def- there's it's definite that she's socially progressive. Um, now, the interesting thing to me is what does this do to the law and order argument about Joe Biden? Um, It seems to me that a lot of the criticism of Kamala Harris in the primary was that she was kind of the equivalent of a law and order Democrat. You know, there was this meme, Kamala is a cop. Uh, Biden, even at one point in the the debates, attacked her from the left uh, on law and order issues. Uh, it seems to me that if you're running the architect of uh, one of the most draconian crime bills in modern American history, plus a person known as a tough California cop together, that the sort of uh, Trump defund the police, American carnage, no law and order message is going to lose some of its vitality there. Uh, and it seems like the only constituency really for whom Kamala is an ominous pick is social conservatives. And I'm, I don't see any evidence that Biden thought his path to the White House ran through social conservatives anyway. So it struck me as kind of a safe pick. Uh, it struck me as a uh, nothing that's going to rock the boat on the campaign that much one way or the other, to be honest. Um, and I think it's going to actually play to her strengths a little bit. Uh, when she was When she was running for president, it was pretty obvious she didn't know what she was running for. But now she kind of has, as a as a good lawyer, she sort of has a client, and the client is the the uh, guy at the top of the ticket in the Democratic platform, and that will unleash some of her better skills, uh, which you can sometimes you've sometimes seen on display in in Senate hearings. Declan, let's get you in here. Yeah, it's uh, we for the Morning Dispatch today. We uh, got some polling from from Georgetown University. They sent it our way, and. Um, Kamala, it, I was actually surprised to see that she has a, a plus seven net favorability rating right now. That was actually underwater last year while she was while she was actively running. But kind of since she's receded from the from the limelight a bit, uh, that has trended back up. I'm sure it will as, as kind of attacks and and she gets defined on the national stage uh, once again. That will will change. But uh, you saw that her her um, approval rating was highest with women uh, compared to men, was highest with black voters compared to Hispanic and white voters, and then highest with upper class compared to working class and, and lower class voters. And I think, I mean, that's um, pretty telling of, of what, as David said, you know, he doesn't, Joe Biden doesn't see uh, conservative, social conservatives as his path to the White House. He does see women, suburban women, and and black voters as as his coalition and and she definitely is a um, play to to all three of those things um, and you know we we ran through last week that we had a, a edition of of TMD where we ran through I think eleven of uh, the potential nominees uh, for for vice president and um, you know a lot of our readers were um, very opinionated on on one or the other or or a handful. Um, and and it seems that 
you know, Kamala Harris checks, checked the most boxes for, for Biden. And, and from doing a little bit of reporting yesterday and, and talking to people on the Hill, um, the biggest one that, that Harris filled that some of these other candidates didn't was just the stability and the, the known quantity um, that, that Harris brought that, that some of these other candidates didn't in that, um, you know, Susan Rice had never run for office and had never, um, you know, been on a campaign trail and, and had to interact with voters and things like that. Tammy Duckworth was, um, is still very, very new to the, to the Senate. Um, and, you know, didn't run for president herself, has never undergone that serious vetting. And so, um, Kamala is, uh, in, in many ways, she unites the, the democratic party that, you know, there's going to be the vocal Bernie fringe that, uh, is not a fan of her and particularly, uh, from the perspective of that law and order message that, that David referenced. But, for the most part, she's a unity pick among the Democrats and and a safe pick for for Biden in terms of being a known quantity. And um, you know, there there in theory won't be too many surprises with her as she kind of takes to the campaign trail the the last stretch here. So I think again and again we've seen uh, reporters, pundits, basically expecting the Democratic Party to look like the Republican Party did in 2016 and expecting that to spin out. And then time and again, it's been close. There's been moments, but that hasn't happened. You have the Bernie wing of the party that looked like it was poised for a takeover and everyone predicted sort of a 2016 repeat on the Democratic side. But if we were to like make that analogy, uh, and David, I'm curious if you agree, like I think this is the Jeb Bush Marco Rubio ticket. (laughs) I, I totally agree with that. Totally. I mean, this is mainstream and mainstream Democrat. And and yeah, I mean, conservatives are right to say, well, Kamala is left of the, say, the typical yeah. mainstream and, Democrat, but that's because the Democratic Marco Party is were, more left. That's right. Jeb and Marco were to the right of George W. Bush. Right. Um, but but that was because the party had moved right. And I just think that uh, the reasons that people don't like Harris are the reasons why she'll be an incredibly effective campaigner, in my view. Um, but also, you know, the worst laid fears... Uh, or perhaps uh, hopes of the Trump campaign that you would have this super far left wing person to allow them to build this narrative around Biden. Uh, you know, I've seen some of their hits today where they're trying to say that, like, basically Harris is running Biden. That's just right. a tough sell to make with this. And I know they're going to try to make it, and and uh, you know, it'll be effective with some of their base, but it would have been so much more effective with a. Uh, even a Susan Rice, but certainly Elizabeth Warren. Um, And so what you get with Harris is someone who's going to be running for president from the moment she takes office if she wins. And so she's not going to do crazy, wacky things as vice president because she wants to be president. So she's going to do the things that a vice president does when they want to be president. She's going to own an issue that is, uh, you know, popular with the American people. And that she can say that she led on for eight years. Um, You know, again, will that be on the left side of things? Of course it will be. It's a Democratic ticket. It's the Democratic Party. But I think the Trump campaign, for all their bluster about how pleased they are with the Harris pick, is deflated today because this was their their worst option in terms of building a narrative around Biden when nothing has really stuck yet. And I, I, I think you saw that a little bit in the immediate reaction yesterday from from the White House and, and the Trump campaign, and that um, you know obviously he they had an ad out immediately uh, characterizing Harris as phony as a flip flopper, um, etc. But then when when asked about um, you know her her candidacy in a in a in a press conference later in the day, the first thing that um, Trump turned to was fracking her her position on fracking, and then um, <laughs> and and then when he was on. Uh, Sean Hannity's show later in the day, uh, you could see Hannity kept trying to prod Trump to talk about Harris, to criticize Harris, to to e- explain how left wing and how dangerous she is. And and Trump kept changing the subject. To, I think he went on a couple minute uh, diatribe on windmills and, and, and he just wasn't interested in, in talking about um, Harris. And so we'll see. I mean, obviously, she will be defined over the over the coming uh, days, weeks and months. But uh, yesterday, as an early indication, showed just how difficult that might be. Well, so, Steve, let me, let me jump in. Yeah, I, go ahead, Sarah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you what you thought of how 
there's this weird little nugget out there that Trump donated to Harris and not way, way back in the day, like fairly recently, 2011. Um, you know, how will that factor in, in your mind to the Trump campaign's ability to attack her? But also Harris took money from Trump you know, back when he was doing the birther stuff with Obama. So it like kind of cuts both ways. Yeah. And for that reason, I think it probably ends up, they end up neutralizing one another. Right. I mean, we, okay. we've seen Trump donate to many, many other Democrats in the past and, and it not really have much effect on what arguments he makes or what arguments his supporters make on his behalf. I suspect that that'll be the case here. Although I do think you'll see Democrats as they try to to portray Harris um, and by connection Biden as these sort of Bernie Sanders lights, they will say, you know, Donald Trump donated to to Kamala Harris. I do think. Let me push back though a little bit on on sort of where Biden and Harris fit in the uh, sort of if, if we're looking at this as a, as an ideological spectrum. I think you're both yeah. right that that they are in today's Democratic Party mainstream Democrats. But today's Democratic Party is far to the left of where the Democratic Party was eight years ago. I mean, I would say four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago. And that, while I don't think that, that I do think it'll be hard to sell her and Joe Biden as Bernie Sanders wannabes, it, it remains true that that Biden, you know, had has uh had these this these negotiations and sort of this this deal with the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, even though Sanders really isn't a Democrat. Um, and if you look at what they're proposing policy by policy, it's true that it's not as radical as it could be. That doesn't mean that it's centrist. And I think that's an important distinction to make. I mean, just some of the things that I mentioned that that Kamala Harris has championed, these are radical proposals. The Green New Deal is a radical proposal. A watered-down Green New Deal is a radical proposal. Changing the number of justices on the Supreme Court is a radical proposal. Implementing gun, new gun control measures by executive order is a, would be a radical undertaking. Now, Donald Trump, of course, has done a lot of this. Barack Obama had his pen and, and phone. So we, we've seen both in terms of process and in terms of outcomes um, this shift in the way that, that we're governed. Uh, but I do think it's notable that while they may be mainstream in today's Democratic Party, if this were 20 years ago, they would be seen as lefty fringe candidates in the Democratic Party. No, I think that's right. I mean, I you know, I, I definitely think that's right. I, I do think, though, how I do think, however, if you look at the, the dynamics of modern American politics, I think the American public has moved a bit to the left um, in the Trump era. I also think that she's left in a way that is sort of most offensive, say, to the evangelical voters in Trump's uh, base, where the one thing where we know, like, she's really solidly uh, for abortion rights, she uh, seems to have uh, little, you know, given much, very little thought to religious liberty. Um, obviously, if she became president, her judicial nominees would be pretty far to the left. Uh, but when it comes to the voters who who gave the Democrats the House, these suburban voters, a lot of these guys now we know are not hardcore social conservatives. They're concerned, it's, if, any poll, if the polling is any indication, when it comes to things they're really concerned about, race relations and the pandemic, um, I don't think there's anything about uh, Kamala Harris that would give them pause on that. Uh, and, and from that standpoint, you know, it feels like one of the potential long-lasting effects of the Trump, um, of the Trump presidency could well be turning some of these suburbs, if not blue blue you know maybe light blue or i don't know it's the right thing sort of purplish blue that's not light blue um <laughs> but it, it seems to it, you know it seems to me that if you're talking about is this pick going to alienate the voters that biden needs uh, according to the concerns that so far as best we know from uh, from the polling that they've expressed then i think the answer there is no 
uh, even though I think, Steve, you're absolutely right that Bi- the, the Biden-Harris platform is going to be well to the left of the Hillary platform in 2016 and to the left of Obama in 2012 and the left of Obama in 20, 2008. And wouldn't it be wouldn't it be ironic if if that if, if sort of the way into a more progressive mainstream came as a result of sort of a, a counter reaction to a president in Trump who was not terribly ideological. So it's it's not like the the shift to the left is happening, would happen, is happening because Donald Trump represents this sort of hard right ideological, you know, in the old school ideological sense, um, president. It's it's a a cultural shift and a further divide between, you know, I, I mean, I hesitate to even call it the cultural right, but between this sort of, as David has talked about, kind of authoritarian, illiberal right and making the the illiberal left perhaps more palatable to the suburban voters that that David's talking about. I mean, that that does seem likely to me. You know, there's one quick thing. There's a he's temperamentally very extreme. And so. When people experience a person who's temperamentally extreme, even if sort of ideologically he's more moderate in many ways, they say to themselves, he's extreme. And it was interesting when you looked at the flip side of, say, Trump, Pete Buttigieg was temperamentally very moderate. But he would it would make me pull my hair out, what's left of it, when people would say, Pete Buttigieg is moderate. No, P- Pete Buttigieg was not moderate at all. He was temperamentally moderate. And so you sort of experienced him as moderate, but ideologically he was very left. And in the Republican Party, Dick Dick Cheney was sort of the antithesis of Trump in that way because he he came up moderate temperamentally and had worked for so many moderates um, as as he cut his teeth in national politics, working first for the Nixon administration, then for Gerald Ford. You know, he he became seen as a moderate, and then when he was elected in his own right to Congress in 1978 and carved out a, a, a voting record, um, by the time he was chosen as George W. Bush's running mate, there was this sense that Dick Cheney was, you know, conservative, but still pretty moderate. And then the immediate aftermath of that pick, when people went back and looked at his voting record, I think people were surprised to a certain extent to learn that Dick Cheney actually was very conservative. And Cheney sort of, when I interviewed him about this, he took great joy in the fact that everybody had seen him for all these years as a moderate when he had compiled really one of the most conservative voting records in Congress over that stretch. So Declan, I have a a theory for you. The, The fun part about having Declan on this podcast is that normally I just text Declan all day my weird theories to get his feedback. Uh, and now I just get to like ask you in person and like, you know, uh, we need to actually talk. Yeah. So here's my theory. The president tweeted this morning, uh, the suburban housewife that was in quotes for some reason, the suburban housewife will be voting for me. They want safety and are thrilled that I ended the long running program where low income housing would invade their neighborhood. Biden would reinstall it in a bigger form with Cory Booker in charge. Uh, Setting aside several problematic aspects of that tweet, perhaps. Um, Here's my theory. They're going to actually, for the most part, they're going to try to brand Harris and they're going to try to continue with the theme that the, uh, you know, Biden-Harris ticket is this, you know, wildly left-wing ticket. But what they're actually going to pivot to a little bit here is uh, other cabinet members that Biden, quote unquote, will put in his cabinet. And you're going to see him saying Cory Booker is going to be in the cabinet and he's, you know, a lunatic and AOC is going to be in the cabinet and uh, basically using other foils because Harris is not going to be effective. Thoughts, feelings. I I, I think that's exactly right. And I, um, you know, I I saw a little bit of back and forth yesterday that um, before the Biden campaign made the announcement um, of of Harris, one of the spokespeople came out and said, um, it's kind of funny that the the Trump campaign is already painting our pick as a left wing radical before they even know who it is. Um, and, and I mean, that's that's true that no matter who the you know, no matter who uh, Biden ended up picking, there was going to be a very similar campaign from from the Trump campaign. And, and you've kind of seen that uh, play out in the way that Biden himself being the nominee, you know, that 
Trump is still running a he's a radical left candidate as if it was Bernie Sanders as the nominee, as if it was Elizabeth Warren as the nominee. You know, it's it's harder to make that argument for Biden. And I think that's why you see that Biden's winning by eight and a half points in, in the polls. But it hasn't really changed the Trump campaign's message, the fact that um, Bernie lost the lost the nomination. And so I think you can kind of see in these in the in our hyper nationalized politics where a lot of voters know a lot of these people that uh, ran for president didn't win and and will uh, inevitably be in a in a um, Biden administration that you can make them the boogeyman and boogeywoman um, rather than Harris. I mean, they'll they'll still try with Harris, but it, it will be more effective to voters to to hear about what Elizabeth Warren is going to do to um, the the banking industry or to school choice than it. Um, or it'll be more effective to, you know, as as you mentioned, Cory Booker on housing policy or um, Pete Buttigieg and his plans to add nine members to the Supreme Court, et cetera. Um, and so you'll you'll kind of get this mishmash of, um, you know, 15 to 20 different different people uh, that that will be part of a Biden administration. It, it, we'll see if that has the effect of, uh, you know, getting voters back into the into the Trump camp or so diluting the message that they're trying to run that that it ends up kind of being a wash. But I, I definitely think that they will try. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, ExpressVPN. You've had a time you search for something online you wouldn't want others to know about. And I know most of you are probably thinking, why not just use incognito mode? But let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why you never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, you won't even realize you have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse not to use it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash freedom, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash freedom, expressvpn.com slash freedom to learn more. All right, it's time to move on to our second topic, and that comes to me uh, last a few days ago. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence put out a statement on election interference that included three countries' intentions towards our election. It said China prefers that Trump loses, Russia prefers that Trump wins, and Iran prefers Trump to lose. It was like a little sandwich. And uh, this got a lot of reactions, not surprisingly. Interestingly, Senate Intelligence Committee was like, thank you for being specific about what these countries want. Uh, Pelosi and Schiff put out a joint statement saying that uh, while the it was a better, an improvement on the last statement, that uh, it still treats three actors of differing intent and capability as equal threats to our democratic elections. But then uh, David Imbordino, the NSA lead on the Joint Election Security Task Force with U.S. Cyber Command, said, uh, quote, Russia, China, Iran, they all have intent and they all do activities that they think are advancing their best interests. I don't think I would say one is scarier than the other per se. Steve, <laughs> I'm curious whether you agree with his statement. The, the problem, I think, that the intel community um, is dealing with right now is determining an in intent. It's very hard to determine. We're much better at assessing capabilities of our adversaries, particularly in this space. Intent is much more subjective. Um, we could conceivably uh, intercept communications that make intent clear, but you can never really be sure that those communications were not intended to be intercepted. Uh, so they could be sort of 
deceptive uh, by intent uh, to confuse things further. I think that's a I think that's a big challenge. The the basics, as I understand them, is that the United States is confident that Russia will attempt to meddle um, and that Russia will be pretty brazen about it, pretty open about it. They want people to know that they're giving fits to this global superpower and that they can affect potentially affect the outcome of our elections with their meddling. China is is much um, more eager to play a sort of behind the scenes role with vastly superior capabilities uh, to, to those of Russia. Um, the, I think there have been some worrisome reporting in Intel channels about exactly what China could do given its capabilities or given what we think uh, China's capabilities are relative to what we think they will do um, because China, the, the theory goes, the reasoning goes, China does not want to sort of blow up the U.S. election so much as it wants to make things more difficult. Um, China needs our markets. China would like to see a diminished United States, but not one that collapses immediately because of the effects that it, that would have on Chinese economy, um, China's trade, China's um, the sort of balance of global superpowers. Um, I don't take, I will say, I don't take great comfort in our assessment that China does not have um, the same intent or is unlikely to be as aggressive as Russia. If we think China is potentially in some of our election systems now, and I think we do believe that, I think our intelligence community does believe that, uh, that should be tremendously unnerving um, to our government leaders and to the public at large. This, it strikes me, is, is one of the most significant stories and the kind of thing that, you know, you, you see this, this report, and the unclassified version of this report put out publicly. I think it's so that the intelligence community can say to people, both to warn them prospectively, but also to say, hey, we are doing everything we can to monitor this, and we are briefing policymakers so that they understand what the risks are. It's not the job of the intel community to lay out the specific responses to these things. That's the job of policymakers. But we're making very clear that these potential threats exist, that they're not imagined, and that it would behoove policymakers to actually do something to address these threats. What we can't determine yet is what policymakers are doing, because as you say, Sarah, you have uh, political interests here in the United States with the, the polarization that we see every single day, not wanting to work together to protect our elections um, with different adversaries, potentially or allegedly wanting different outcomes. You have different political parties and different political interests working crosswise in protecting our own elections. And I think that is a real sad state of affairs. And it's one of the ways in which polarization could could lead to pretty dramatic negative consequences if it's not addressed. David, am I the only one who doesn't care who these countries want to win? They sh like <laughs> they should stay the hell out of our system. You know, it's funny. I felt like we were we were watching sort of like the the tyrant's endorsements rolling in. Like, who, right? Who, I I frankly, what I don't care about is who China wants to win, who Russia wants to win. What I do care about is what will China or Russia do to further stoke the incredible amount of distrust and negative polarization in this country. You know, if you look back on 2016, the Russian disruption operation in our election has to be one of the most cost-effective disruption operations in intelligence history. I mean, what, what about $100,000 worth of Jesus arm-wrestling Satan memes, um, a couple of spear-phishing hacks, and Americans are at each other's throats with a big chunk of Americans believing either the memes or the combination of the memes or the hacks resulted in an Ill illegitimate election outcome. I mean, this is stunningly effect cost-effective work from Russia, and I feel like we're more vulnerable rather than less vulnerable in 2020 in a very key respect, in that we're more vulnerable to seeing, to hating each other over Russia, even than yes. we were in 2016, which is very, very dangerous. And the only other thing I have to say, because I'm re-watching The Americans right now, uh, one of the, the 
great shows in television history. The real losers here are Philip and Elizabeth Jennings because they had to, in the 1980s, go to the United States of America, pretend to be American, leave a trail of bodies in their wake, <laughs> undertake these incredibly dangerous intel operations for marginal benefit, when if they were you know, alive now, in their prime now, they could just be sitting back at their homes in Moscow making memes. Oh, David. So, David, David, going with the television, the <laughs> Americans, for those who have not watched it. What was that FX? What was it? That was uh, FX, but you can see it now. It's on Amazon Prime, and it's so... It is amazing, by the way, just like a little side cul-de-sac for David and I, that the Americans, uh, they did so... Like, talk about my curling um, metaphor. <laughs> there was so much sweeping for, like, no benefit. Oh, there, yeah. There's a whole <laughs> subplot where they... They'd like leave all these bodies on the floor to send in bad information to the Soviet Navy. And yeah, anyway, well, we're, we, we digress. Hey, I, <laughs> I watched the American just just so that uh, I can register this moment, mark this moment as the um, somebody who's not up on popular culture, doesn't watch <laughs> movies, doesn't really watch TV the same way that you all consume it. I watched the Americans. I agree entirely. It was fantastic. Oh, my fantastic. God. <laughs> You guys, Seriously. Steve's been body snatched. It's a, it's There's an moment. alien on our podcast. <laughs> this is how we would know. We always said this is how we would tell. The moment has come. Okay, Declan, thoughts on the DNI report? Yeah, um, I'm actually reporting out a, a piece on this uh, right now. I've talked to a bunch of um, experts in in disinformation, uh, social media campaigns, things like that, and um, they, I mean they're they're worried. It's the one of the biggest takeaways that I've gotten is is just how far we've come from 2016 in that one we're aware that it's happening at a kind of a broader scale and and two that uh, the tech companies that were in basically exploited Facebook Twitter um, you know etc in in 2016 now have you know much more robust uh, mechanisms in place to to catch this stuff flag it delete it uh, or or mark it as otherwise. Um, but it's not perfect. And, uh, and what, uh, what a lot of these people are saying is that, you know, you, you don't necessarily need a, uh, you know, a guy in Russia to pretend to be a Kansas, um, you know, 55 year old woman posting about X, Y, X, Y, Z things. You can just find, um, you know, existing divisions within America and amplify those and find ways to, take a legitimate person's post uh, or a legitimate American post about the election and somebody who's on a fringe or who believes in, um, you know, various conspiracy theories or, or um, you know, very out there views and just amplify and, and promote already existing um, American sentiment and make others believe that that is more prevalent and more, more widespread than it actually is. Um, and that's something that I think they did a little bit with um, in in 2016, but uh, something that you know we're we're only making it easier for them uh, in in the years since in in kind of the way that we uh, talk about our politics, talk about each other, talk about um, you know the the divides in this country. And so you know I, I asked some of these some of these experts what like worst case scenario could could look like, and they um, you, you know they they talked about. A, a video could pop up on November 3rd showing, um, you know, somebody stuffing a, a mailbox with, with fraudulent ballots or things like that. And then, you know, a, a network of uh, foreign actors could amplify that video enough to the point where Trump sees it and Trump retweets it and Trump has a comment on it. And now half the country is out there thinking that there's fraudulent uh, balloting going on. And then if you actually go back and do a reverse search on the video or something like that, it's happened five years ago in like the country of Kosovo or something like that. But the message will already be out of the bottle. It'll be too late to um, do anything about. And so, you know, that's that's what people are worried about. And that's, um, you know, a legitimate fear. And um, to, the, to Steve's point, I, you know, Russia has these interests in... Uh, destabilizing our democracy and, and eroding trust in each other, our trust is already at all-time lows. And so they don't have to do too much to, to push it over the edge, but it could be, you know, in many ways, the straws that break the camel's back. 
All right, David, let's move on to Europe's last dictator, a little Russia adjacent, if you will. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I'm very curious. I, there's so much going on in the United States of America right now. I mean, this, this is a, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of a recession. We are uh, confronting uh, incredible negative polarization. But you know what? Stuff doesn't stop happening in the rest of the world. And I'm very curious. Uh, I've been watching the developments in Belarus with um, real interest. Um, it looks like part of the internet is being shut down there after its its uh, leader Alexander Lukashenko won with. I, I should uh, listeners, you can't see my air quotes. Won his election with eighty percent, eighty percent of the vote. Um, the opposition candidate has fled the country. Um, and why is it, why does this matter? Well, this this is a in essence a strategically it's a buffer state. It's between Poland and Russia. Not that big. It's about nine million people. Vladimir Putin has proposed to Belarus, and not not so much a um, a swallowing of Belarus, but a, a kind of a, more, a tighter political union. So he obviously sees Belarus as uh, very much the the stability and alliance with Belarus is very much in Russia's national interests, and it's chaos there right now. It's absolute chaos. Um, Trump administration is trying to encourage real democracy there. Uh, I'm not so sure that Vladimir Putin wants real democracy there. And I just wanted to raise this as, you know, uh, an ominous development in Eastern Europe and one that I'm very curious to see what Putin does. Um, This is very much in Russia's sphere of influence. It's a dangerous location because of its proximity to one of our major uh, new NATO allies in Poland. And um, I, I, I'm literally at a, at a loss as to what will happen next. And, and Steve, uh, you know, I'm sure you've, you've been following this as well, but I just wanted to flag it uh, in, as a topic of conversation that this is, an, this is, uh, this is an, a volatile situation. Steve? It, it is, you're right. The, <clears throat> it's been very interesting to watch um, inside the Trump administration um, attempts to come to a consensus position um, on on the election. I mean, the, the the it was pretty apparent in the days before the election last Sunday um, that Lukashenko was likely he was he was certainly likely to be threatened. I think most people watching closely would have said he was likely to lose. There had been this groundswell of support first for um, the the uh, spouse, boyfriend of the eventual uh, opposition candidate, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, and then in favor of her. And she w- she really became sort of the, the personification of this support, of this movement, um, part due to um, difficult on-again, off-again relations with Russia, part due to challenges uh, to the Belarusian economy, in part due to the woeful mishandling of the coronavirus, all of these things have sort of added up to great frustration with the Lukashenko regime. And then, as many people predicted, Lukashenko seems to have stepped in and pretty pretty solid evidence that that there that this election is is a fraud, including precincts with turnout over 100% of voters. We have a good piece on the <laughs> website by Stephen Nix of the International Republican Institute laying out some of this and talking in particular about what the American re- response ought to be. There's been sort of a muted response, I would say, from the Trump administration. Uh, you had Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, uh, speak out earlier this week, uh, suggesting that uh, there shouldn't be these kinds of questions surrounding this this election. You had a statement from Kaylee McEnany expressing concern about the results, but you haven't seen the kind of forceful um, denunciation or condemnation of the kinds of meddling that have been widely reported. And I think that's a mistake. I think the United States should be outspoken, should stand up for our principles and values, even potentially at the cost of driving Lukashenko uh, further into Vladimir Putin's hands or making a deal. Uh, they're, they're not buddies, but making some kind of a deal or, or looking to Putin 
as sort of a protector. I think it's important to to rally the international community against these kinds of uh, authoritarian moves, and we'd be we'd be uh, smart to to make a much stronger statement and to to work with allies to potentially stand up to to Lukashenko. Declan, the Morning Dispatch covered that this morning. This is your baby. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't have too much to add uh, to, to what David and, and Steve said. I know it may look like I'm a Belarusian political expert, but um, <laughs> not quite. But uh, I, I will just say, you know, we, we covered this on Wednesday and then Tuesday we covered um, what's happening in, in Lebanon and uh, in, the, in the wake of the massive explosion in the, in the downtown of Beirut last week. And it's just, uh, an important reminder that as, as, uh, convoluted and as hyper-partisan and as, um, uh, scary sometimes our, our politics can be, there are, uh, a lot of things happening around the world, uh, kind of, uh, untethered to, to what's happening here at home. And it's important to, to keep an eye on, uh, and, and to keep the, the people that are being affected by that in, in our thoughts and, um, you know, it's 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 a big world out there and it's a, and it's a scary one increasingly. And a quick break to hear from our sponsor, the Bradley Foundation. Making sense of current events during this extraordinary time can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Visit bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring renowned scholar, Robert P. George, the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. George is a 2005 winner of the Bradley Prize and a member of the Bradley Foundation's Board of Directors. In this episode, he makes the case against judging historical figures by present standards and for telling the truth about America's history, protecting the integrity of the institutions of civil society, and being more understanding of those who have perspectives different from our own. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes debut weekly, so go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. Okay, well, you guys have all passed the marshmallow test for this podcast because we have saved uh, the most contentious, important topic for last, (laughs) and that is Declan's topic. As a Northwestern alum, I don't even really get to say go cats this semester. I mean, that doesn't make it any different than most semesters, if we're honest about it. Oh, hush, Dave. Steve is the worst. Pat, Pat Fitzgerald has turned that program around. Um, no, I, you know, the the last time I was on the Dispatch podcast, it was to talk about my experience being young. So I'm glad I get to bring in this other aspect of my identity, which is sports. And, uh, and so, you know, college football is in the news this week, uh, yesterday, because the the Big Ten and the Pac-12 uh, decided officially to postpone all fall sports um, until at least the spring, most notably um, football. And and so, you know, we have forty percent of the of the Power Five conferences. There will be no football uh, this fall. Um, you know, the the Big Twelve, ACC, and SEC. Um, as I'm sure David will will point out soon after, uh, are continuing with their with their season, um, and I actually the the uh, SEC commissioner put out a pretty hilarious statement yesterday after the the Big Ten made its decision, saying, "I look forward to learning more about the factors that led the Big Ten and Pac-12 leadership to take these actions." It's kind of a very polite. Very um, David's uh, warming up to to speak right now, but. Um, you know, so there's definitely divide within the college football community um, on on this issue of of whether it is safe due to the coronavirus to to play um, these games, and it's become a a political issue as well as as things are wont to do. Um, ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska and former university president, wrote a letter to Big Ten presidents and chancellors earlier this week, um, requesting that they do continue on with the season. Uh, President Trump has kind of thrown his weight behind the growing movement from uh, players uh, that are being led by Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback from Clemson, and um, about hashtag we want to play. And so um, there, there is going to be kind of this this fight playing out um, uh, over the over the next coming weeks of of what sports will look like. Obviously, we've seen baseball and basketball return. The NFL is still slated to. 
Um, and, and hockey has returned as well. I got uh, flack for neglecting hockey and, and TMD. So, um, and the NFL is still planning to return, but um, you know there there was this a, a brawl in an A's Astros game the, over the weekend um, after a player got hit by a pitch, and everybody on uh, Twitter was screaming about how this brawl is uh, in violation of the coronavirus safety protocols that people are getting too close, that people are. Um, uh, that people are going to be spreading it to each other. And I, I tweeted out like, guys, have you ever seen a game of football? That's essentially what this is. And so <laughs> it will be interesting to see. I mean, NFL is going to go ahead. There's too much money for it not to. Um, but I, I think we get to a point. Uh, there's been two outbreaks in, in across baseball thus far, and that's a sport that you are pretty socially distant in. But uh, I think we start the NFL season, we see, you know, breakouts, pretty regularly and it'll be interesting to see kind of how these organizations that have kind of chosen to to plow ahead uh will will look in the, in the coming weeks and the decisions that they'll have to make but my question I mean, to oh go ahead no go ahead Declan uh my question to to the panel is is which which uh conferences are right in in how to to manage this uh dilemma going forward David's sitting in SEC country, but David, my favorite meme on this was the Jerry Maguire scene where Jerry's walking out of the office <laughs> and they have Jerry as the Big Ten and Renee Zellweger as the Pac-12. And he's like, who's coming with me? And Renee Zellweger's like, yeah, Pac-12, coming with the Big Ten. And then the the boss, the evil boss is the SEC up in the like the second floor and he just like with disgust walks away. You are that evil boss, David. No, 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 no. The better meme is... The one of Mel Gibson in full war paint and Braveheart and going, saying, hold, hold in, in the face of the onrushing cavalry charge. And that's the SEC. That's the <laughs> SEC. <laughs> Look, let's just deal in it. We're fact-based journalism and analysis. So as of right now, it is just simply a fact that the core of college football is entirely intact uh, as far as the season goes. If you look back at the last 15 years of college football championships, uh, 14 the leagues representing 14 of the last 15 titleists are still playing. So we're going to have a legitimate national champion. We would have a legitimate national champion if only the SEC West played uh, this year. So... As far as I'm concerned, college football is rolling forward and the minor leagues are dropping off, which is fine. It's like, I don't think AAA ball is playing in, in professional baseball right now, right? Um, not. Yeah. yeah, so I think the, I, I would say this, I mean, look, we're struggling with how to handle this thing. We don't know. And there is an error on the side of caution approach excuse me, and an air on the side of normal life. And I think the SEC schools are located, uh, they're obviously located in red states that have opened sooner, have taken a different approach from some of the blue states, and this reflects that. And so my kids, for example, are going to the University of Tennessee this fall. Most of their classes are going to be online. Um, I can imagine taking, easily imagine taking a bubbling approach to the players where their classes are 100% online, where you take uh, measures to essentially quarantine them off from the rest of the student body. So there are, there are ways to play sports safely as the NBA is demonstrating. I mean, the NBA so far has pulled off its approach flawlessly. Um, there have been zero positive coronavirus uh, cases since they restarted play. And NBA basketball, they are very physically in each other's faces. So what are the resources available available to essentially bubble off these players while still providing them an education? I just have to say it feels possible, but the record of American competence um, across institutions in recent years does not give me an enormous amount of confidence. But let me just say I'm cautiously hopeful cautiously hopeful. Steve, I mean, we have seen young people die of this. It is, um, you know, less statistically likely than someone who's older for sure. 
But, you know, 24-year-olds who are former high school football players in great shape have died. Uh, and one, uh, you know, statistical data algorithm said that of the 13,000 college football players, uh, the likelihood was that three would die from the virus if they continued to play. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think those are exactly the kinds of uh, analyses that you have to balance as you make these decisions. I, I was interested to hear um, Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner now at the American Enterprise Institute, talking about this. He was asked about it, and <clears throat> he said, on the one hand, he, did, he didn't want to be in the business of second-guessing the decision of the Big Ten um, and, and others. Uh, on the other hand, he seemed to second-guess the decision of the Big Ten and others saying that he thinks it was probably possible to take these precautionary steps that David mentions and uh, have them complete or at least begin a season uh, having, you know, extra precautions and maybe these bubbles that you're talking about, although I think that would be difficult and some of the travel really complicates matters. But he seemed to think that it would have been possible to give it a shot and his... his, um, understanding was that the reason that the the decisions were made as they were was because it would have drawn resources from other parts of um, these schools' uh, efforts to educate students in the middle of a pandemic. And that, you can imagine, would have been a, a, a massive, beyond the sort of public health questions, a massive PR uh, challenge for some of the Big Ten schools that already are, are criticized for placing too much emphasis on football and too little emphasis on on education. I will just say, uh, as, as a coda, I, I'm surprised to see David fully embrace this cultural performative bravado, you know, with the... With, <laughs> The, after all of his arguments about masks and, you know, the, the, the tough guy routines that we've seen and his trenchant criticism of that for David to now really flip and fully embrace this, this SEC, you know, football at all costs mentality. I find it rather. No, 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 no. Football with bubbling, football with bubbling. And I think it can work. The NBA has shown us the way the bubbling approach can work. And, and I'd also say the MLB is traveling. They had the major problem early with the Marlins. Um, you can always say major problem and Marlins in the same, in the same sentence, but they had the major problem. I think it served as a wake up call for a lot of these players. You have a lot more control over college football players than you have over professional baseball players. As a rule, these schools have their resources to bubble. I mean, they are rich, especially the SEC schools are absolutely rich with resources. They have the resources to bubble. I say they can play safely. I hope that, let me say, I hope they can play safely. It's within, within their capacity to play safely. I, okay. Declan, last word to you. I, I hate to be the, the Debbie Downer on this, on this conversation, and I hope that I'm wrong. But, you know, you, with the MLB in particular, um, that's, I think they've increased their rosters to 30 players this time around um, be- because of, uh, you know, what we're talking about. Um, but even after that first major disaster with the Marlins, a week later, there was a second major des- disaster with the Cardinals in St. Louis. Um, and so they haven't played in a week and a half or two weeks now at this point. Um, and then just yesterday, two uh, Cleveland Indians players had to be sent home from the team because they got caught going out to bars in, in Chicago when they were playing the White Sox. Um, <laughs> and so these are, you know, these are uh, professional athletes that are getting paid, you know, single to double digit millions of dollars this year to basically stay in this bubble. Um, and there are 30 of them. And then there are, you know, on a college football team, there's 80 to 100, uh, sometimes more than 100, and they're not getting paid anything. And so um, the incentive, I mean, they'll, Trevor Lawrence in, in, in his uh, widely circulated, you know, uh, comments about this, he, he's talking about players will want to be safe and take the precautions for their teammates and for their teams. And I think for, you know, Clemson, which has a legitimate shot at a national title, there's definitely something to that. But if you're, you know, playing at some, uh, you know, school like, Kansas state or something like that. Not any, nothing, nothing wrong with Kansas state, but you know, you're not competing for a national title. 
if you're, you know, the third string kicker, are you going to want to bubble for an entire, you know, six months to, um, you know, maintain that position and, and maintain that? And so I, I hope that I hope that I'm wrong and that this can that can work. But, you know, we'll we'll see how it plays itself out. OK, uh, last question to the guys. What was your main high school sport and what position did you play as? I'm going to assume Steve actually was the actual athlete. So we're going to start with Declan. <laughs> well, it depends if you, my high school counted marching band as a varsity sport in terms of, in terms of, in terms of getting a gym exemption. So I was on the, I was on the drum line, which is the cool oh. part of, of, of marching band. Thank you very much. Um, okay. So you were the cool kid of the not cool kids. Sure. And then I, and then I ran track a couple of years too, but I was not very good at that. Um, so yeah, that's that was my high school Probably. experience in a nutshell. David, so Sarah, I was a, a person ahead of my time, uh-huh. unfortunately. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I tried out uh, for, Dungeons and Dragons wasn't a varsity sport <laughs> in your high school. No, it was so not. Good. It was was not. Uh, so I tried out for the basketball team. And my problem was that I was an outside shooting guard before <laughs> the introduction of the three-point shot. That's mm. how old I am. So <laughs> had the three-point shot existed, I would have been a valued member of the team. As it was, I was kicked to the curb and <laughs> could not make the high school football team. But I did make the high school tennis team and played in the state tournament my senior year. So there you go. My record okay. in my senior year in high school was 17-2 and two, um, as the sixth seed for the mighty powerhouse Scott County Cardinals, where I made it into the first round of the state tournament and was promptly disposed of. <laughs> but where I did better even than tennis was the high school academic team, Sarah. <laughs> Not surprising. How many people were in your graduating class, David? Uh, 245 or so. Okay. Declan, yours? 666, which was fun to hear at graduation. Yeah. We started with about (laughs) 700. (laughs) Uh, all right, Steve, I'm counting on you here. I I appreciate the the question, which allows me to go into full uncle Rico mode. (laughs) (laughs) If if coach had only put me in at the end of the state championship. Um, no, I played, I played, um, soccer all through high school. I was, uh, either a center halfback or a center midfielder or right midfielder. Um, so you were destined to like Spanish wines, even from a young age. Probably true. I, I loved soccer. I grew up playing soccer. That's one of the reasons I have my bad knees, but my real dilemma was I, I also played competitive volleyball, um, both, Mm. uh, indoor six-man volleyball and then outdoor two-man volleyball, sometimes four. Um, And the soccer and volleyball seasons were the same season, both fall sports. So I stuck with soccer through my entire high school uh, career. And looking back on it now, probably should have switched to volleyball my junior year. But I had a great time in soccer. All my friends were soccer. We made it to the, my senior year, we made it to the, I believe we made it to the semifinals, maybe the quarterfinals of the state championship. I scored a goal and it was called back because the referee Uh. who had a horrible angle said I used my hand to knock the ball down when in fact I used the shoulder. Not that I'm still holding <laughs> grudges about this at all, but if you look at the video, and I will be happy to post this on the the dispatch. That'll website, be in the show notes, listeners. I'll, yeah. I'll put the the video on the on the website, and you will see uh, very. The video is definitely on VHS. Very yes, it was definitely on VHS. <laughs> uh, so, Steve, I have a question for you. What was your signature goal celebration? Mm. Like, did you? rip off your shirt and slide into the corner did you like lift your leg on the on the corner like some soccer stars have did did you have a cell phone hidden back in the day like like to was that the to celebration (laughs) yeah i didn't um i mean to be honest i didn't score a ton of goals in um (laughs) soccer I, i scored some i scored more my freshman and JV year than I did um, when I was moved up to varsity. 
but I try. I, I tried to you know to to live by the old um, motto: look like you've been there before. So so mine was always. <laughs> I always tried to be sort of understated. Hmm. Interesting. And how many people were in your graduating class? I think we were about 500, something like that. The Wauwatosa East Red Raiders, now just the Wauwatosa East Raiders. I think we're 500. um, How old were you when Top Gun came out? I'm curious about that volleyball scene's influence on your life. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was playing competitive volleyball before then. And that was an interesting moment because everybody then wanted to play volleyball, of course. Um, but we were playing competitive volleyball well before then. I must have been a, that must have been my se- junior or senior year. And we would play, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee had night courts that were lit up um, with competitive games, really competitive games from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee had a men's team. And so we would go down and play two-man sort of tournaments to see how long you could hold the court for hours and hours on end against those guys from UWM and from the the neighboring schools. So it was pretty competitive well before Top Gun. But then then you had, you know, everybody wanted to do it. <laughs> so there there's a there's videotape out there, Sarah, of my uh peak exploits on the academic team. They were they were on WLEX TV in Lexington, Kentucky. They had a, a they had a sh- quiz show called In the Know. And it was a it was a tournament broadcast on Saturday mornings of high school the the high school quiz teams. And listeners, I have really good news for you. I am not going to let any of the guys put up video of anything <laughs> that they did in high school. <laughs> the so funny thing worry. though, if if you see the highlight reels, which are, of course are all over YouTube with millions yeah. of views, um, I'm I'm sitting next to the person who was my at. had just previously been my high school girlfriend who had just broken up with me. And every time I correctly answer a question, you see my eyes dart over to her, like, see what you're missing. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta find that video. That's perfect. Uh, All right, listeners. I, of course, was uh, the president of the orchestra in the viola (laughs) section. uh, And have the varsity patch to prove it ditto Declan so thanks for listening we will see you again (laughs) next week I am not allowing any commentary on that and uh, thanks again 